Church, it's good to be with you this morning. We're continuing our series through the book of Philippians. We're in the end of Philippians chapter 2 this morning. I'd encourage you to turn there, Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in front of you that you can grab. Let me pray again briefly as we turn uh, to the word this morning. Oh God, we recognize that we need your word to live. It's not out of form. It's not merely out of habit that we come here. It's because we need to be fed. We need to be sustained by your truth. We need to be encouraged and adjusted and corrected. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would make your word living and active this morning, that you would pierce our hearts and help us to see the truth of Christ who gave himself for us and then called us to follow in his wake, spending our lives for him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I have a love-hate relationship with whatever it is on my iPhone that creates these collages of photos and then sends them to me. Okay, you've seen these? Sometimes it's you know, five years ago today, this is what happened. And it shows you pictures of what happened five years ago. Or the one I dislike the most, the one that says, they grow so fast. And then they send you a picture like this one that I got this week. It is that, yes. It's also a reminder of how fast life goes. I love these photo collages because I cherish the memories that they evoke in my heart. I don't like these collages because they remind me of how fast life goes. Minutes go by slow, hours zip by in a flash. We only have one life to live. Are we making it count? I had a similar thought as I watched Pastor Steve give away most of his library over the last three years. It was a reminder that unless Christ returns before then, pastoral ministry will come to an end. It raises the question, am I making it count? I suspect you can ask similar questions. But that's another reason that I love these photo collages. Because it's an opportunity to recommit. It's an opportunity to be adjusted in the moment, to recommit to the priorities that are in front of us. Am I being intentional today with the breath that God has given me? You only have one life to live. It's true for every single one of us in this room. And your life may come to a close slowly in your 90s, or it may come to you quickly tomorrow. Remembering that we only have one life to live supplies us with the urgency we need. And that's what this morning's passage provides us with an opportunity to do. Chapter 2 of Philippians started with this breathtaking view of Christ's humility. Willing to take on human nature, though he existed in the very form and likeness of God, he obeyed God the Father all the way to death, even death on a cross. And it was in his dying that Jesus did exactly what God intended for him to do. It was his crowning achievement. He reconciled God's people to God. And Paul calls us in Philippians 2 to imitate the mind of Christ, to have this same mind that Christ had that led him to do what he did. And in Philippians 2, 19 to 30, the verses we'll look at this morning, Paul holds up before us two Christians who have the same mind that Christ had. They knew that Jesus spent his life for them, and so it was their desire to spend their lives for him. 
Now, I'm praying this morning that we have a moment to recommit ourselves, a moment to look at our priorities in a fresh way. It's so easy to become distracted by the demands of this world and by the treasures of this world. And so would you join me in asking the question, am I gripped and consumed by what Christ accomplished for me to make me alive and new, so gripped that my entire life revolves around him, or is he sprinkled around the edges of what I hold dear? So let's begin with the life of Timothy, verses 19 to 24. And what we will see here is Timothy's pursuit of gospel priorities. That's what marked Timothy. Look at verse 19 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes to the Philippians, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul wants to send Timothy from Rome to Philippi in a century where travel was difficult. Timothy becomes a bridge between Paul and the Philippian church. Now this week, Paul Sung and Yvonne Reed and I were on a Zoom call with three Christians from North India. And we were brainstorming and considering various, various ministry opportunities. There are no Zoom calls for Paul. There's no WhatsApp messaging. There's no email. In order for Paul to communicate with the churches that he loves and cares for, he needs to send people back and forth between him and between them. Why Timothy? Verses 20 and 21 tell us why Paul chooses Timothy. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now we could read this as Paul has no one quite like Timothy. There's no one quite like Timothy. There's no one more trusted than Timothy. No one who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Well, why does Paul believe this to be true? It must be that in his co-workers, he detects a tendency towards self-focused thinking. The Christians with him in Rome must be struggling with what you and I struggle with, which is varying commitments to our own interests. Varying commitments to our interests over Christ's. But in Timothy, Paul has confidence. He's watched Timothy, and he has confidence in how Timothy will respond. Timothy is consumed by Jesus' agenda. Look at verses 20. Or that's, that's what we see in verses 20 and 21. Timothy is seeking Jesus' interests. That's his driving motivation. That's what gets him up in the morning. That's what he's concerned about. What would please Christ? What does Jesus want for today? What does he want out of this decision? There may be competition to seek his own interests, but Jesus' agenda consistently wins the day for Timothy. It's Jesus' agenda that becomes the filter through which Timothy views the world. It's how he makes decisions about life and relationships in his own career. But what is Jesus' agenda? What is he trying to accomplish in the world? What has Timothy borrowed from Christ that he's applying to his decision-making? Well, in a phrase, Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. That's what I'm doing. Here are three verses to back that up. John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's Philippians 2. This is what he comes to do, to lay his life down for the sheep. And not just of the fold of 
the Israelites, but also sheep from other folds that Jesus will bring together into one new flock. And in Matthew 24, this message, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, going to various flocks, various nations, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is Jesus' agenda. Go get the sheep from all the folds and all the flocks and proclaim to them the gospel of my kingdom. And what's Jesus doing while the church is going? John 14, 3. If I go to prepare a place for you, if I go back to the Father, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. The good shepherd's laid his life down for the sheep. Jesus has called the church to go get the sheep, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the sheep. And while the church is doing that, Jesus is preparing a place for us. And when the gospel has been preached in all the nations, the end will come. Jesus will return for his bride, the church. That's his agenda, and that's what drives Timothy. Look at verses 22 and 24. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father... He has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul knows that the Philippians understand Timothy's worth. He's proven it. He's demonstrated his commitment to Jesus' agenda. He has a, a track record of faithfulness that starts when Paul first meets Timothy in Lystra. And when Timothy joins Paul's missionary team and they travel across Asia Minor, Timothy begins to be folded in with the heart of Paul. And they plant churches and they strengthen churches. And then the Holy Spirit takes them into Europe. And Timothy becomes one of Paul's most beloved co-workers, like a son with a father. He's with Paul during three years of ministry in Ephesus. He stands with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment. He acts as Paul's emissary and representative to Thessalonica and to Corinth. He co-authors six letters with the Apostle Paul. And Hebrews indicates that Timothy even spends time in prison himself. Timothy pursues gospel priorities. He has only one life to live, and he spends it for Christ. He devotes his days and months and years and decades to Jesus. And because of his demonstrated passion and commitment, Paul hopes to send him to Philippi. But not until Paul receives his own verdict, which is a reminder that Paul is also imitating the mind of Christ. We learned last week that Paul is willing to be poured out as a drink offering for Christ. And when Paul receives the verdict of whether or not he'll live or die for the gospel, he will send Timothy to Philippi. And in fact, Paul tells us here that he hopes he can go himself. So Timothy pursued gospel priorities. Christians, we only have one life to live. And what I mean by that is we have only one life to live here on this earth. It is true that we have an eternal life waiting for us in Jesus' kingdom. For all who trust in Christ, we have eternal everlasting life to come. But we have only one life to live here. We have only one opportunity to share the hope we have in Christ. By the time we get to the eternal kingdom, there will be no one else to witness to. It's now that we have the opportunity to take the gospel to the nations. Now is the time for us to pick a place to live that has little or less access to the gospel. 
Now is a time to be intentional with every minute of every day because we only have one life to live. This morning we have an opportunity to recommit to the kind of one-hearted, consuming passion that Timothy displayed. So let's begin with parents. Now, Timothy doesn't appear out of thin air. Timothy doesn't just magically become a stalwart Christian worthy of our example. Timothy is the product of intentional, faithful parenting. He has a grandmother, Lois. He has a mother, Eunice. Two women who model the gospel for him. Two women that Paul says their faith dwells in them. And Timothy, your faith has begun to dwell in you. He sees their example. He watches faith dwell in their hearts and he follows them. There is nothing I long for more in parenting than to see my children grow up with an irresistible joy and a relentless devotion to Christ. That's it. That's the objective. But I can't make that happen in my own strength. Faith is a gift that comes from God. But I am an example to my children. And so what does my relationship with Jesus reveal to them? Is Jesus the overwhelming treasure of my life? Is he the jewel of great price? Is he my one consuming passion? And I don't just mean I say that, but do they feel it? They're living in my home. They're watching me like no one else is watching me. Do they feel it in me? Is my life revolving around Christ or is he sprinkled around the edges of my own priorities? And so family worship every evening, do they hear me groan and rejoice in prayer or do they hear a distracted dad overly committed to the pressures of his own day? Do they see me linger in a conversation with that non-Christian neighbor, or do they hear me complaining that that same neighbor has left his trash cans out three days in a row? Do they see me spring out of bed on Sunday mornings because we get to go to church? This is, the, this is it. This is the highlight of the week. Do they sense it in my own heart? Or do they feel me bored? Do they sense me dragging my feet? And when I'm here, do they feel me treasuring Jesus? Do they feel my earnest pursuit and gratitude as they're worshiping next to me? Do they feel that? You see, it's not our goal to get our kids to like church or to profess Christ. We want this, the whole life investment that Paul holds up for us this morning. We want a generation of Christians who see that Christ has spent himself for them until their hearts are warmed by that truth and they long to spend their one and only life for him. And this isn't a charge to those of us with children in the home. It's not only a charge for those of us with children in the home. All of, this, all of us model this together. It's why we've welcomed children into this space, into this worship service, so that they can see it's not just mom and dad who are crazy about Jesus. It's this whole group, it's this whole family, young and old, from different backgrounds, who seem to be treasuring Christ just like mom and dad. And it's not just form 
It seems to be coming out of their bones. What I see in mom and dad, I see in all these people who seem to love Christ and love each other and love me. This whole church family, as we genuinely love God together, here gathered and scattered throughout the week, we show the next generation what it is to spend ourselves for Christ. Well, let's talk about career. To spend our lives for Jesus doesn't mean we all need to follow Timothy as missionaries. Some of us do need to follow him. We need to cross a cultural and language barrier and share the hope of Christ. Some of us need to do that if the gospel will be preached among all the nations. But it's true that the majority of us will send. We will buy homes in this city and we will pursue meaningful careers and we will give sacrificially to the work of the gospel. And we will disciple one another and we will proclaim the hope we have in Christ to our neighbors. But we can't lose the thread. It's so easy to lose the thread. We only have one life to live. Jesus spent himself for us so that we can spend ourselves for him. And almost every job you can pursue provides you with an opportunity to glorify God as you pursue excellence in your work. As you bring order to a creation, a creation that's been disordered by sin. As you love people well and serve people meaningfully by providing good services and good policies. All the while looking for opportunities to proclaim the hope we have in Christ. Don't believe the lie that what you do for 40 or 50 hours a week, if it's not full-time ministry, is somehow what you need to get through so that you can get to ministry. The very work that God has given you to do has eternal value and consequence as you dedicate that to the work of Christ. It is too easy for me to lose the thread. And I'm a pastor. You set me aside to do this, and it's hard for me. It's going to be hard for all of us to hold on to the thread and to see ourselves as his ambassadors with one life to give for the sake of Christ, to be consumed and driven by his agenda. Now, Paul gives us a second example in verses 25 to 30, and that's the example of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus endures gospel hardships, similar to Timothy, right? This is a man that Paul holds up and says he has the mind of Christ. Now, as I said, Paul is waiting for the emperor's verdict before he sends Timothy, but Epaphroditus he sends now, probably carrying this letter. Epaphroditus is probably a Philippian. We know that he's sent by the Philippian church to Rome with a financial gift that's meant to sustain Paul or help sustain him while he's under house arrest. But Epaphroditus doesn't just deliver the financial gift. He stays and he serves Paul. He's an extension of Philippian love for Paul. Notice how he's described in verses 25 and 6. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, Paul commended this kind of wholehearted devotion earlier in Philippians. 
Epaphroditus is not a casual observer to Christianity. He's not dabbling around the edges of the church. He takes responsibility for the gospel. Paul has proclaimed it in Philippi along with others, and Epaphroditus has owned this message for himself. He's not an observer. He's certainly not a consumer. He is a responsible steward who has skin in the game. Christ spent his life for me. I want to spend my life for Christ. And it cost him. Look at verse 27. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Now, the primary hardship that Epaphroditus is enduring seems to be this ill health. He's got some sort of disease that almost kills him, but God has mercy on him. And Paul is grateful so that Epaphroditus can be sent back to Philippi and that Paul can be less anxious. Your beloved Epaphroditus is now back with you. But it's also true that Epaphroditus was cozying up to a criminal, a man who, was a, who could lose his very life in a matter of minutes because of his call to follow Christ. So Epaphroditus is putting himself in danger, not just his physical health, not just his, his, his illness, but also his very life as a martyr. And Paul says, when he returns, probably with this letter, receive him with all joy. Look at verse 29. Receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Give him a hero's welcome. He did for me what you wanted to do, but you couldn't do because you were too far away. But you sent Epaphroditus and he came to Rome and he did for me what you couldn't do yourselves. And in the process, he got sick and he almost died. He risked his life for the gospel. You see what Paul's done? It's probably an ordinary sickness that Paul connects with risking his life for the gospel because he was doing the work of ministry. He was supporting Paul so that Paul could continue. And what did Epaphroditus forfeit to serve in this way? You have to ask if he had a career, if he had a, a family. What did he give up for this extended time away from Philippi? But he gives it up. He guts it out one step at a time. Why? Because Christ spent himself for Epaphroditus. And therefore Epaphroditus is willing to spend him li his life for the gospel. Epaphroditus knows he has only one life to live. One life to invest in gospel advancement. And he does it by enduring gospel hardships. One way we endure gospel hardships is by accepting cost. Epaphroditus accepted a cost for the sake of the gospel. Ed Grudier used to be our missions pastor at Cherrydale. He and Kathy now serve in Australia, who still loves the Grudiers. So Ed and I spoke this week about several things. One of the things we talked about was potential work for Cherrydale in North India. Now, India is a hard place to serve. The people are lovely. The climate is difficult. The spiritually, it's a hard place to labor. Persecution is significant. Yet India has more unreached people groups. And by unreached people groups, I mean a language and a culture group that is unreached with the gospel. Meaning there's not significant Christians. There aren't significant Christians 
There's not a Bible perhaps in their language. They have no access to these things that we have. There are more unreached people groups in India than any other country in the world. Now this map produced by the Joshua Project has been lodged in my heart since, 2000, since October of last year. Somebody at Joshua Project needs a raise for the development of this map because I can't get it out of my head. Here's what it's showing you. It's resizing the world based on the population of people living in an unreached people group, living in a people group with no meaningful access to the gospel. Look at India. 1.3 billion people, 95% of their population lives in an unreached people group and most of them crammed into the north. And despite that, it, very few missionaries are going to India, which Ed helped me confirm this week. India has a desperate need for gospel ministry, and it is an incredibly hard place to serve. You have to incur a cost to go. You have to risk a lot to go. You need to be willing to endure gospel hardships to go. You have to be willing to risk your health and comfort to go. You have to risk persecution to go. You have to be far away from family and have less access to biblical community. But in order for India to be reached with the gospel, Christians need to go. And this can't just be about India. Because most of us won't be called to go specifically to India. But what does endurance and gospel hardship look like for those of us who stay and send? What's the last hardship you endured for the gospel? You see, in our context, it's pretty easy to manage a hardship-free Christianity. It's pretty easy to avoid some of the costs. It's getting harder but it's still pretty easy to avoid the cost. For example, when's the last time a non-Christian friend pushed back on you for a decision you made to honor Christ? Some aspect of your life you avoided or leaned into for the sake of Christ. Or when's the last time you've given financially to the point where it hurt you, to the point where it felt like a sacrifice? That pinch, that hurt. When's the last time you sacrificed time on your calendar for a gospel conversation? What you really longed for was a night at home, a quiet night at home, and instead you invested it in a friend who needed you that night. Or when's the last time you skipped a vacation in order to go on a short-term missions trip to some place like India? When's the last time you endured a hardship for the sake of the gospel? You see, if we're not regularly enduring hardships, we're missing the adventure. And I chose that word carefully, the adventure of the cross-bearing life of discipleship that Jesus invites his people into. That's where the adventure with Jesus is. He hasn't called us to dabble about in Christianity. He's called ourselves to submerge ourselves in a life of following after him. Here's another aspect of this. Endure gospel hardship by releasing your body. It's a weird one. But I think it's what Epaphroditus models for us. He's willing to steward 
his body for Christ. He's willing to let Jesus borrow his body for the sake of Jesus' agenda. And I think this is one of the hardest things for us to do because our bodies are understandably precious to us. Sickness, though, is an opportunity for us to announce to whoever will listen that Christ is worth more than anything else in creation. Our bodies are an instrument and we can play this eternal note that we are confident not in this flesh, not in this life, but in the resurrected body that Christ has promised us. We can declare our hope in sickness of our everlasting life with Christ. We can release our bodies to Jesus saying, use this body in sickness or in health to the glory of your name. Use it, all of it. God, bring the joint pain and the diabetes and the depression and the dementia and the blindness and the pain and the discomfort. If you will use it for your glory. Let's be people like Epaphroditus who are willing to use our bodies and let Christ borrow our bodies for the sake of his kingdom. Because we believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What's sown is perishable What's raised is imperishable. That's why we can let Jesus have use of our bodies. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What's sown in weakness is raised in power. What's sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body and a spiritual body that will last forever. Endure hardships for the gospel's sake. Our bodies are most precious to us. But the gospel invites us to release them to Jesus. Now, all of this talk of sacrifice and cost assumption and cross-bearing, where does it all lead? It leads to a life of thrilling dependence on God and joy. Ali, our North American missionary, spoke with us a couple weeks ago. And if you had a chance to meet with him outside of the service, in addition to how he shared with us here, you would find very quickly, you would sense his thrilling dependence on God and his overwhelming joy. It comes right out of Ali's heart. Ali knows that God is at work and he uses us. And if we maintain this thread, he will use us in ways that we could not have imagined. And so Ali is able to stand before us and say that quite literally, this is a historic moment for Muslims across North Africa. They are coming to Christ in droves. And brothers and sisters, God can do this through us, not in the same numbers perhaps, but he will use us for his glory. Jesus spent himself for us, not so that we can spend our lives on ourselves. What happens when God releases his people from slavery in Egypt? Do they go off on their own managing themselves? No, God gives them the law. He makes them a people. He becomes their leader and their eternal king. And that's what we have in Christ. He has spent himself for us so that we can spend ourselves for him. Jesus invites us to happily exhaust ourselves for the sake of his kingdom purposes, to endure all hardships for the sake of his glory. And all of these momentary 
temporary sacrifices for the gospel will give way to an eternal reward. You cannot outspend Christ. What happens when Jesus obeys the Father all the way to death, even death on a cross? God highly exalts him. He is raised from the dead. He returns to the right hand of the Father to experience the glory he had with the Father before the world was. So yes, those of us who belong to Christ are caught up in his suffering. But yes, we are also caught up in his glory. And so in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we want to acknowledge straight away that this is not something we can do in our own strength. We are prone to be distracted and discouraged by this life. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would strengthen us with faith to live in light of the kingdom that we cannot see, to spend every ounce of this life, the only life we have to live for your glory and for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please.